0: Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them uh, to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. We're taking our break from uh, Samuel as we look to prophecy fulfilled in the coming of Christ. So we're going to look at one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 2. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. We're grateful for each and every one of you that join us in that way. Uh, we get a chance to hear from you in a lot of different ways, um, but we're grateful that you're joining us this morning. Also, uh, Reach Church Paola, Reach Church DeSoto. Uh, this evening, Reach Church DeSoto is having their Christmas children's program. So it's gonna be a special time out at Reach DeSoto. And then um, also welcome the venue service right down the hall. Here at Lanexa Baptist, we're having our holly jolly journey with our families this evening. There's gonna be a lot of families here in the church and I'm excited about that. It's always fun this time of year. I do wanna remind you, don't forget about our Christmas Eve services. We have those Eve-Eve services on Saturday night. Uh, we'll have services at 5 o'clock and 7 p.m. Both of those will be right here in this room. there will be candlelight uh, communion services. And then Sunday morning, which is Christmas Eve, we'll have our normal morning services at 9, 30, and 11, but those 9, and 11 services will be candlelight communion services. And again, just as we always do, we'll have services in this room and the venue uh, right down the hall. So please make plans to attend one of those services with us and, and invite a friend, a co-worker, a family member, have them come with you. Well, as we turn our attention to God's word in Psalms uh, chapter 2 this morning, this is what is referred to as a royal psalm. It contains uh, a coronation formula, uh, a formula that was used when a new king was installed. Often the, the father who was king uh, would come out before the people and he declare that today's the day. I'm stepping aside and my son is now the king. And everyone knew that the son would someday be king, but on that day it it was official. He would officially uh, assume his reign as king. Something very similar to to this psalm was probably read at the coronation of every king of Israel. But if you read this psalm carefully, you'll note that no earthly king could justify the language that is used in this psalm. What is said here is far too great for any earthly king. So the question is, who are we talking about? Who is the psalmist referring to? Who is this king? Well, the New Testament quotes this psalm 18 times. It's one of the reasons why long ago I decided I better know know this psalm. It's quoted by Jesus in the Gospels, it's quoted by the church in Acts, it's quoted by Paul and Peter in the New Testament epistles, and it's quoted in the book of Revelation. And so while so often this psalm is unfamiliar to us, it was very familiar to the New Testament writers. And on every occasion that this psalm is referred to in the New Testament, it is always connected with one person and his name is Jesus. This psalm is Old Testament prophecy that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's read it together, then we'll pray and work our way through it. Look with me, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he'll speak to them in his anger and he'll terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And you shall break them like a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we count this as a sacred moment. We, as your body and your people, gather together around the truth of your word. And we don't come today to gain more knowledge, we come to change to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in the truthfulness of your word. Lord, I pray that you would illumine the principles of this text to our mind by means of your spirit. Help us to better understand who you are and who is king. And Lord, I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you. Lord, I pray that by your word and by your spirit today, you would draw them to yourself and they would see that Jesus is king. And we pray this in his name, amen. Look with me at verses one through three. It says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart Let us cast away his cords from us. The overriding theme of this psalm is that Jesus is king. But how does the world respond to the reign and the authority of Christ? It is clear that the world rebels. In other words, the world around us is not ambivalent or neutral towards God. The world is hostile towards God and his son Jesus Christ. And the, the psalmist is very specific here. When he says the Lord, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the covenantal, personal name of God. That the world is not hostile towards God in general, the world is not hostile towards religion in general, the world is hostile towards Yahweh. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who has named himself. And not just Yahweh, but his anointed. Anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach. It means Messiah. The world rebels against God Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his son Jesus Christ, who is Messiah. Every time I think about this, uh, Faith and I, we had a pastor when we were in seminary at Wedgwood Baptist Church named Al Meredith, and they'd had a shooting there. Before we got there, you may have heard about in the news. There's, there was a shooting. A person came in and shot during the see you at the pole rally. Many died, and through that, Al Meredith had a chance to proclaim the gospel, the news, and all those places showed up, and, and he was invited uh, to give the invocation at the Cotton Bowl. And uh, he said, that's like saying sick to a coon dog. You know, that's about as good as it gets. You got about 80,000 fans You have to sit there. And he was fired up, ready to go. He shows up, and they say to him, you can pray to God, but you can't mention the name Jesus. Well, guess what he did? <laughs> uh, he preached Jesus. He said, I'll never get invited back. But I took my shot. And it's this reminder. You just start talking about God in general, the world doesn't get too offended by that. You start talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his son, Jesus Christ, and there's hostility. The psalmist also makes clear that it's not that they don't want God in Christ, they don't want his fetters. Fetters is better translated Yoke meaning they're not just upset because they're in prison they're they're angry because they have an owner the picture is there's there's somebody who owns them there's somebody who controls their life there's a creator who has rights over them and they rebel that's the heart of the world the heart of the world is i want to be my own that's the mantra of the world in fact george mcdonald the commentator the theologian says that's the mantra of hell That I want to be my own. I don't belong to anybody but myself. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm king. I'm God. I was at the airport last week and I saw a woman. She had a shirt on that says, I can be whatever I want to be. And I thought, that's absurd. But is that not the mantra of our culture today? I can be whatever I want to be. There is no God. I'm God. I determine who I am. I determine. That's the mantra. If you don't believe this, then you probably haven't had children or teenagers. Um, How many of you, when you were growing up, your parents gave you curfew, gave you restrictions, and you said, "Uh, thank you, Father, for your love is so overwhelming. I shall be home early so we can read the holy book together. Um, No. You rebelled. Scripture tells us that is the natural inclination of our sinful hearts due to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. We naturally rebel against God, against his word. We want to be free. We want to be God. We want to be king. And you'll notice here, this is how the world views God. The world views God as putting them in fetters, in chains. Last week we studied in Genesis 3, it was the lie of Satan to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same lie he tells today. And what is the lie? The lie is God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really love you. He's restricting you. God isn't here to bless you. He's trying to enslave you. And you'll remember as children, that's sometimes how we thought about our parents, didn't we? As parents, we know we put restrictions to try to protect them. our children. We love them. As a child, you think of that as restrictions, and they're trying to enslave us and make our lives miserable. And it's often how we view God. It's the lie of Satan that if you really want to be happy, if you really want to be all that you can be, you must rebel against the restrictions of God. The world rages, rages against. God and Christ and His control. And you may say, you know, Pastor, I hear what you're saying, but I think you're being overly dramatic. You say, I think, because I've heard this, the the world isn't hostile, the the world's just indifferent to God. You know, I've found something to be true in my preaching, I've found something to be very true in evangelism. That whenever you preach the gospel, whenever you point somebody to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you point them to the Word of God and Scripture, what I love to do is if somebody's inquiring about Christ, to to get them to read the gospel accounts of Jesus. And if a person begins to investigate the gospel and they really begin to look into Jesus, you'll find two things occurring. Two things occurring simultaneously. Number one, they'll be drawn into Christ. Because there's no way that you can read about the God uh, of Jesus and, and, and the love that he has demonstrated towards us and not begin to be drawn to him. Not the, not the Christ that you hear about in culture, but the truth about who Christ is in his word. You read about him, you hear about his love and what he's done for you, you can't help but be drawn to him. But simultaneously, while they're being drawn, often what you'll find is that they will find themselves offended by his message. Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's salvation in no one else. And not only that, but if you do not trust in Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity in a place of eternal torment called hell. And and more than this, Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father. Meaning that your, your love for, for Christ must be so much greater than anybody else that your feelings towards anybody else in your life would almost appear to be hatred. And some of you are hearing that right now, and you're getting mad right now. See, people may be indifferent towards the idea of God. They may be indifferent towards the idea of religion. But there is hostility towards the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there is hostility towards Jesus Christ who is the only means of salvation that God has provided. So the picture you have here is of man shaking his fist at God. That's the picture. God, we don't want you Get out of our lives, God. We rebel against you. We don't want your reign. We don't want your lordship. We don't want your restrictions. We don't want your word. We don't want your law. Man shaking his face. What do you think the the reaction or the response of God will be? How many of you think it's going to be, and God was trembling at their great might, that the Lord suddenly had to take counsel against their great wisdom of these little creatures on earth. No, 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 look at the response of God in verses four through six. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God laughs. The rebellion of the world is laugh The world is laughable. God is not trembling. God is not conspiring. God is perfectly calm. God is undisturbed by the rebellion of the world. So the world is plotting and scheming. And isn't it interesting that uh, the atheists of this world, if they were truly atheists, there's no God, they just shrug God off. Well, if he doesn't exist, no big deal. But they rebel against him. They conspire against him. And while the world rebels and conspires, organizes against God, God laughs. As scripture says, he is enthroned above the flood. He is enthroned forever. He, he reigns. And there's a lot of people today, they, they, they mock God. Some of you today, maybe you, you, you've been mocking God. Maybe you've taken the Lord's name in vain, Everything you have today is a gift of God's grace, and yet you mock him, you reject him, you snub your nose at his sovereignty, you snub your nose at his grace, you snub your nose at the giving of his son Jesus to die on a cross for your sins. Listen, if you were God, how would you respond? I don't know what I, if I were God, I would incinerate the world. I mean, we get mad and fly off the handle if somebody cuts us off in traffic. Imagine if you're the God of all creation and you hold the world together by your grace and you supply every person with the breath they breathe and then they mock you and they take your son's name in vain. The question is, why doesn't God bring immediate judgment? We asked this as well last week when we looked at Genesis 3. Man rejects God Disobeys him, man is now broken. God could have just wiped him out right there. The world rejects and rebels. What keeps him from incinerating the world immediately? Can I tell you, it is not the strength of his opposition. The only thing that keeps God from incinerating this world is his grace and patience. God is a God who is abounding and loving kindness and he is patient. He is patient towards you desiring that none should perish and all would come to faith and repentance. But God will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury and and what is his message What is his message to a world that rebels? I have installed my king. In other words, it doesn't really matter what you think, it doesn't really matter what you want, it doesn't really matter what you do. Jesus is king. That's the way you can be when you're God. God has decided, if you want to come to me, you bend the knee to this man in whom my justice and wrath is appeased and paid for. He's the only way. He is king. Listen, this is not a democracy. Jesus is king. He's not running for office. He's not on a ballot, and you're not voting him in. God decides, and God says Jesus is king. Well, look at verses 7 through 9. Jesus, these are the words of Christ. It's the only place in the Old Testament where Jesus speaks. Listen to what he says. I will surely tell the decree of my Lord, for he said to me, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them like a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Jesus speaks and he tells the world of the decree that the Father has made about him. It's that coronation formula. We have a coronation formula for presidents. They place their hand on a Bible and they swear to uphold the Constitution. In these days, the king would would place his crown on the prince and he would say, You're my son. In other words, he was declaring this is not an overthrow, this is not a coup, you're the descendant, you're the rightful heir, you're the rightful king. And then he would say, today I have begotten you. Now there's only one event in Christ's life that is attached to that phrase, today I have begotten you. And it's not the birth of Christ It's not the baptism of Christ. At the baptism, God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's not the transfiguration of Jesus. At the transfiguration, God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. But there's only one time where we see the phrase, today I have begotten you, attached to Jesus Christ. Any guesses? Jot this verse down, Acts 13 32 and 33. Acts 13, 32 and 33. The apostle Paul says there, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, today I have begotten you. Only at the resurrection do we see that phrase, today I've begotten you. So even though Jesus has eternally existed as the son, even though God always knew that Jesus is the rightful heir to the king, it is most fully realized at the resurrection. At the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have the only individual who has lived a real and physical life, died a real and physical death, was placed in a real and physical tomb, and then physically rises from the dead, ascends to the Father, never to die again. You see, when somebody comes back to the grave, from the grave and ascends to the Father, it's a pretty good tip off that they're God. It's a pretty good tip off that they're king, and God, in acknowledgement of the victory that Christ has accomplished over sin, Satan, and death, in his resurrection, says to him, you're my son, today, I have begotten you. In recognition of the victory that Christ has won, God says you alone are the rightful king. Paul said in Romans that Jesus is declared with power to be the son of God through the resurrection from the dead. And then God says to him, What does he say? Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. As the king, Jesus has an inheritance. And what is his inheritance? It's the nations. God says to him, to his son Jesus, you just say the word Jesus and the rebel band is yours. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. God is patient. But know this as well, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man. The reminder here is that judgment is coming. See, you can mock God, you can ignore Christ all you want, but there's a day coming. I want you to see this in scripture because what he describes here, the... the, the, It's actually quoted in Revelation. I want you to look at Revelation 19. So you gotta work a little bit this morning. Turn over to Revelation 19. Go all the way to the back of the book and then turn back to the left a few pages. Go to Revelation 19. I want you to see this for yourself. I don't just want you to take my word for it. This is a picture. This is a picture of of the judgment of Christ's return. It's what we call the day of the Lord. When Christ returns, he, he returns not as a baby in a manger, not as a lamb to die. He, he returns as the warrior king to put down, put down his enemies. As I like to say, this is not your grandmother's Jesus. This ain't the VBS Jesus, and this isn't the Jesus of talking vegetables. This is the warrior king, all right? The warrior king. Look at verse 11, Revelation 19. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse that's not a rodeo horse. That's not a show horse. That's a victorious Jesus. When a Roman emperor, when he would conquer his enemy, he would ride back into Rome on a white horse demonstrating his victory over his enemies. Christ comes riding this white horse, the victorious warrior king, and it says, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And his clo- he, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. When you see his robe dipped in blood there, that's not his blood. When he came the first time, his blood flowed. When he comes again, the blood of his enemy It flows. There's a message here, folks. If you will not be covered in the shed blood of Jesus Christ through faith in him, then one day he'll be covered in your blood. That's the picture. You look at this, this picture. This is not what we normally think of when we think of Jesus, is it? When people think about Jesus, they normally think of three categories of Jesus. They think of baby Jesus, Bethlehem, the manger, They think of Galilee Jesus out there teaching with his disciples, what some people call the hippie Jesus, the the Jesus, long beard, long hair, standing next to a VW Volkswagen and teaching his guys how to recycle. That's how the world thinks of Jesus. (laughs) And then the third category is the crucified Jesus, the passion of Christ, that mutilated um, body of flesh whipped and beaten for our transgressions. People tend to think of Jesus as baby Jesus, teacher Jesus, or crucified Jesus. But listen to me very, very very clearly. My Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is not a baby, and he's not just a good teacher, and he is no longer crucified between two thieves on a cross. That is who he was. This, this is who he is. Look with me at the, uh, verse 14. And it says, And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's us. That's the bride of Christ. Then look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And what does it say? And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's a direct quotation from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the return of Christ when he comes to put down his enemies. He'll rule them with a the rod of iron. Rule is actually uh, the Greek word poema, it means to shepherd. He'll shepherd them with a the rod of iron. But that rod is not a shepherd's rod that's used for leading the sheep. No, it's a rod that's used to beat back the wolves. And Christ comes in judgment to put his enemies in submission. Look at what it says in verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Well, we don't often think about this picture, do we? It's Psalm 2, coming to fulfillment. It's a powerful picture. But you know what's beautiful about this? For those of us that know Jesus Christ, for those of us that have bent the knee to King Jesus, we are the bride of Christ, and at that moment, we come with him. But you know, as I was studying this again, I was reminded our linen is white and clean. Our uniform doesn't have an ounce of blood or dirt on it. Christ's robe is di- dipped in blood, meaning Jesus does all the fighting for us. That's the beauty of submitting your life to King Jesus is you have a king who fights for you. He fights, we watch. It's a reminder that salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. I didn't help Jesus in the work of salvation. He did in my heart. I didn't help him when he died on a cross. I will not help him at the end when he ultimately defeats the enemies. I did not help the the lamb when he was slain and I will not help the lion when he roars. He is the King of Kings. And the Lord of lords. And he fights the battles of those who submit to him. It's a powerful picture of the judgment that's coming. So turn back with me to Psalm 2. Let's finish this out. So the picture there is Jesus is king. World rebels? Doesn't matter. God says Jesus is king. And God reminds the world he's coming in judgment. So what is the application What's the application of this? Look at verses 10 through 12. Psalm 2 Therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. The picture here is that in light of this knowledge, in light of the fact that that God has determined that Christ is king, in light of the fact that that God has decreed that Jesus is king, in light of the the fact that he has declared with power to be the son of God through the resurrection, in light of the fact that he has told you he is coming one day in judgment, here is what you do. You show discernment. You wise up. It's as if the psalmist is trying to grab the world that is acting in rebellion towards God, shaking them as if to say, wise up. Do you have people in your life, you see them, they're rejecting Christ and they, got a care, they don't have a care in the world. They're walking in rebellion towards Christ. They're walking in disobedience. They take the Lord's name in vain. And, and you want to just shake them and say, do you not fear God? Do you know who you're rebelling against? He's king. Your efforts to subvert him are futile. He is king. God has declared he is king. He is declared through the resurrection to be king. And the psalmist says, "Do homage to Jesus." Some of your translations may say, "Kiss the Son." It means that instead of fighting against Christ. Embrace him. Instead of rebelling against him, surrender to him. Instead of bowing your neck to his sovereignty and his control, bend the knee. Now note here, it doesn't say, if you can find some time to go to church, go to church. It doesn't say, make him an occasional hobby in your life. Listen, when you recognize that he is king, You submit to him. You bend the knee. You kiss the son. You submit to your life to him. You trust in him. You rely upon him. Why? The author tells us because his wrath may soon be kindled and you perish in the way. You've heard me say this before. You can either bend the knee today willingly and know his salvation and his forgiveness and his grace. Or you can bend the knee forcibly when he returns in judgment. But every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I I was studying this and I I love this psalm, but I couldn't help this week thinking, Chad, what in the world are you doing? It's Christmas. It'd be very easy just to get sentimental. With all the sentimentalism of Christmas, it would be really easy just to give you some feel-good stuff. I've never been... A person who wanted to be known as some kind of hellfire and brimstone preacher. Faith is reminding me, your yelling doesn't make your preaching more effective. (laughs) But listen to me. The Bible is set within the context of hell and damnation. The warning of God's word is serious. I'm not trying to be some kind of salesman. I just want you to know the truth. I want this to be a place where you come. You're not here to hear the wisdom of Chad McDonald. I got very little. but I want you to know if you come here, we will be faithful to tell you the truth. And this is the truth, that Jesus cannot be shrugged off. You can't dismiss him. You can't ignore him. At some point, you must deal with him. And my prayer is that you would worship him today. You would embrace him today and know his salvation so that in the future, you would not know his judgment I love the psalmist ends this not with a warning but a promise. How, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed. A lot of people, as I was saying this week, they connect Psalm 1 and Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are connected. They're the only Psalms that don't have a title. But you'll notice Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And Psalm 2, how does it end? How blessed. Jesus, when he begins his preaching ministry, what does he do? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Can I tell you today, God does want you to be happy. But God knows that true joy and fulfillment doesn't come from rebelling against him. It comes from running to him. There's no refuge from God. Isn't it funny, people, they just wanna avoid God as if you can hide from him. I won't go to church. As if God could only find you at church. Just like Adam and Eve, don't what do we do? We try to hide from God. There's no refuge from him. You can run, but you can't hide. There's no refuge from him, but there is refuge in him. You can't run from him, but you can run to him. And the beauty of God's word today is that if you'll run to him, you'll know his grace, his joy, his forgiveness. You'll know the security of a relationship with the God of all creation who made you, loved you, and sent his son Jesus to die for you. You'll know the security of knowing that no matter what happens to you in this world, you'll be with him forever in a place called heaven. Based on no act of your own apart from believing in Jesus Christ. How blessed are those who take Refuge in him. You know, the world, they don't want the fetters of Christ. They want to be free. Everybody, I just want to be able to do whatever I want to do. They want to be free. But can I I ask a question this morning? Look at the world today. Are they really free Most of this world, they've thrown off God, they've thrown off Jesus, and they aren't free. They're in bondage to fear. They're in bondage to depression. They're in bondage to loneliness and all kinds of evil substances. They're in bondage to pornography. They're in bondage to horrible relationships. They're in bondage to sin and Satan and death. Listen, you want to know true freedom today, then try taking Christ as your king. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. How many of you as a child had to learn the hard way that true joy doesn't come from rebelling against the rules? It comes from learning to live within them. Can I tell you, you want to know joy today? You want to know real joy? Bend the knee to Jesus. Jesus. Some of you are beat down. You've been seeking freedom from, from God. You rebel against Him and you are worn out. You know why? Because you, you, may, you may think you're free from God, but you're enslaved to sin and Satan. And Satan is a hard master and he will beat you down. And you know what Jesus says? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we thank you for your word that points us to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray for those today that don't know Jesus. Maybe they've been rebelling. Maybe they've been rejecting. Maybe they've been mocking. Maybe they bought into the lie that God really doesn't love them. God's just trying to enslave them. God's trying to restrict them. God's trying to keep them from the good stuff. It's the lie of Satan. And maybe today they've run out of themselves. Maybe they've tried that path and it's only led them into a deeper hole of rebellion and bondage and brokenness. I pray that they would know today that's because there's only one solution. Jesus came to deal with our sin. Jesus came as the solution to the brokenness of our lives and I pray if there's somebody here that doesn't know you I pray that they would know that Jesus is not a solution he is the solution he's the way the truth and life he's the way to God because he's the only one who's in keeping with the truth of God and therefore he alone is the bestower of life and Lord I pray that you would reveal to them the depth of their sin and the beauty of their Savior Jesus who was born died Rose and ascended They would see him as the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. They'd run to him today They'd know his salvation his forgiveness and his freedom Lord I pray That they would be warned today That if they will not There's a day coming Lord for those of us that do know you We're guilty sometimes of nodding our heads and saying, yes, you're king. But there's a lot of our lives where we're not treating you as king. We're not walking in obedience. We're not walking in submission. Lord, I pray that in your kindness you would lead us to repentance. Because the fact of the matter is we can bind the lies. Lord, I pray that we would submit our lives to the King today, that we might continue to know the blessing of your reign in our hearts. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.